Can we celebrate this morning? All right. Yeah, you guys can be seated. Thank you guys so much for being here. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Paul, and I'm the lead pastor here at Gulfside Church, and we're so thankful to have you with us. We are wrapping up a five-week series today that is called Big Church, and I want to just make sure we don't have any strange ideas. This isn't about like how to make a church get big or anything like that or celebrating big churches, but it's about the truth that in Scripture, the idea of what the church is supposed to be, it is a huge idea. It is a big concept, and and we've settled for some kind of lesser ideas of what a church is supposed to be, and in fact, we commonly, when we hear the word church, we think of the place. We think of the building, but the word, as we saw in our first week, the word actually means the gathering. When we hear the word church, We should think of faces. We should think of people. Because Jesus' church was a gathering of people, is what the scripture implies, not just a building place. And and we studied that in the first week, and then we looked at the beginnings of the church, about how they had this awesome time of prayer together. They're in this upper room, and the Spirit of God moved in an incredible way, but He didn't move in their life so that they could just say, oh, we have so much fun praying together. But He moved in their life to mobilize them, to send them downstairs, out into the streets, to preach and to make a difference in their city. And 3,000 people became Christians and then got baptized on the opening day, the first day of the church. And and it was a huge, huge deal. And it began to change the city. And in some ways, it created some difficult difficult situations with the disciples and the apostles. They, They started to experience persecution, and they started to pray these bold prayers. After they got persecuted, they said, God, would you help us to preach with more boldness? And then we looked at Stephen's life. He was the first martyr uh, uh, in the Christian faith. And then th- this new character, Paul the Apostle, came onto the scene where God got a hold of his life in an incredible way and said, I'm going to use this person to preach to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people, to kings, to governors, and, and he's going to do incredible things in my name. And that's kind of where we're picking up this week. And before we dive into the passage, we'll be studying from Acts 15 this week. So if you have your Bible, you can mark that there. But before we dive into it, I wanted to show you this picture, and I apologize, it's a really fuzzy picture because it's a picture of a picture. It's an old picture. Um, This is a picture of me and Tia back when I was 20 and she was 19. It's been a few days since then. Um, This was when we first started dating, when we were in college still, and it's, you know, back when jean shorts were still an acceptable thing to wear. I apologize if you're wearing jean shorts today. No offense. Um, But that, that, that picture... It's funny just because it's so long ago, but it brings me back to a different time in our relationship. And this is going to sound kind of crazy to you guys, and this should have been Tia's first sign to run away from me when we first started dating, but of the many signs that did come. But uh, one of the first things when we started to, you know, there started to be some interest in each other, I sat her down and I went through, and here's the stipulations. Like, this is what it's going to be like if you date me, just so you know. Like, I, want, I don't want you to say you weren't, you weren't war- warned. Like, you knew what you were getting into if you get into this. And, and I went through some things, and one of them was, because of my past experience, and because of God, how God moved in my life, I became a Christian in a church that Christians describe as the holiness movement. What that means is we were se- really serious about the rules. And, and, and the letter of Scripture is what you do, and you follow it, and God had radically changed my life, and I, I was all in, and so I wanted to follow all of the rules to the T. And so I told her at the beginning, I said, the next woman I kiss is going to be right after the pastor says, you may kiss your bride. And I was like, so if you date me, just so you know, like, I'm not going to kiss you until we're married, which is crazy and over the top, I know. But like, this is kind of where I was spiritually. And I didn't get to this point easily. Like, there was lots of fights 
one, to get there in a really awkward situations worked through to get to this point where I was really serious about following God just down to the letter on so many things. And even though it was great that I was there, there was something kind of negative that came of that. And it wasn't just that I had to deal with the difficulty of not kissing that beautiful girl that, that's on the screen, but I began to look at other people, and because I had these struggles and I was fighting these things in my own heart so much that I would look at other people that, that were also Christians but weren't living the way that I was living, and I would have this like animosity in my heart because I'm like, man, they're just not serious. It's like I know to the point where it was hard for me to like go to church with people because it's like I know what you're doing. I know what you've been drinking. I know about your relationship. I know that you're not giving. I know the whatever, fill in the blank. And because I was so serious about my faith, when I saw someone else who wasn't doing what I thought they should be doing, it was like hard to be in relationship or be in church with them. There's like this judgmental thing that was growing out of my life. And it's like, it should be good that like I'm getting serious about my faith and taking the word of God seriously. But there was this unhealthy thing that was growing. And I mean, I guess the, the way that I explain it is that like in my faith, I decided like this is the healthy amount of faith that you should have. Like your spiritual life should be like this. And, and so, you know, if I looked at you and said, man, your, your faith, it's only measuring out this big, like, you're, you're not doing good enough. You're not a serious Christian. But then I looked over at you, and like, you're out here. I'm like, okay, you're just a fanatic. Like, you belong in the crazy house because your faith is too big, and you're doing too much. And, and we have this tendency to say, my faith and the way that I express it is the right amount. And anyone who does less is not a serious Christian, and anyone who does more belongs in the loony bin. I mean, have you noticed that, like, we have this tendency to say, like, my seriousness in the faith is the right one. And we have this tendency to begin to judge anyone who is somewhere else in the line of progression. And I know, at least for me, it was easy to forget how dysfunctional I was when I first started getting serious about my faith. It's easy to forget all of the issues that I had when I was young in my faith. And the trap that I don't want any of us to fall in is that when we look around the room, we look at someone else and say they aren't measuring the right distance and how their faith should be, and so they don't belong here. And chances are, if you've ever got hurt at a church, it's probably something related to this topic where someone looked at you and said, you don't have the right amount of faith, you don't belong here. And so you felt like less than enough, or you felt like you were, you, you were made to feel like a crazy person, that you were too serious about it, and you left. And, and this is a drift, this is an issue that dates back to the early church, and this is what's kind of happening in Acts 15. We, we see one of the first huge church conflicts happen, and it's easy to read through this and miss some, some of the seriousness of what happened. And so if you have your Bible open to Acts chapter 15, we're going to read verses 1 through 5 at, at the beginning, and we'll project it on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you, starting at verse 1 in chapter 15 of Acts. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. And I'm just going to pause real quick. We have a great children's area, and if you decide to bring your little kids in here and they have questions for you, I just want to remind you, there's a great kids area that you could have brought them to, and you get to explain this to them later, if not. All right. So some, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot. And he started preaching. Now just to dial back to last week, Paul, his life was changed and he was sent out to preach and he started preaching to the Gentile 
um, people, and, and they started coming, and they started just filling up the, the Jewish church, and so this conflict began to arise. Man, their culture is so different than ours, and, and some of the Jewish people and the Pharisees, they looked at them and said, they, it's great that they made this decision to accept the Messiah, like, that the, the they see that Jesus is who the Old Testament said he is, but now that they've done that, they need to start to follow all of the rules and traditions that we have including circumcision. Like, they need, to, they need to go back and fix that that should have been done when they were little babies, and they need to start washing their hands when they're supposed to wash their hands. They're supposed to stop shaving the hair on the side of their heads. They can't make, wear fabrics that are made out of more than one thing. Like, all of the rules, they need to apply them, or else they're not going to be able to keep their Christianity. They need to become just like us, dress like us, live like us, eat like us. They cannot bring pork to the potluck anymore. Like, they need to live the way that we live. And, and so, the, these, these men, and first of all, I, just wanna, I also want to just kind of note, it says, some men from Judea, like, just a hint, these guys were wrong in what they were teaching, so they don't get to have their names in the Bible. Like, they, they're up in heaven, and they're like, yeah, we're the some men. We don't really like to talk about it, but that, that, that was us. Um, we, we almost got to have our names included, but we missed. So, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses— you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. This was an exciting day to be in church because an argument broke out in the middle of the service. Like some guys were teaching, and, and they're saying, hey, you guys who are Gentiles, we're so excited that you're here today. Uh, we have a room set up for you to take your next step in your faith. You're going to go get circumcised. and you're gonna, Yeah, the next step... New believers class, that was only women and children on that day. But they, they start teaching this. And then Paul and Barnabas, which Barnabas we haven't talked about too much up to this point, but Barnabas is someone who, throughout the New Testament, you see he was a pillar in the early church. But he was someone who loved people so much. Like he loves you, he believes in you, he knows you can change the world, he's never met you, but he knows that about you. Like he's that super positive person. And I think he was too busy just loving people to ever write anything down, which is why we don't have anything written by him. But he's so instrumental. He, he's in so many books of the New Testament, and he's known as the son of encouragement. And, and so Paul and Barnabas, they hear this teaching get started where, where these men from Judea come and they say, you have to be circumcised, you have to follow all, all the letter of the law or you're going to lose your salvation. And they stand up and they say, no, that is not, not right. And, and they start to disagree with them. And there's, this is happening in the gathering of the believers. And, and the apostle Paul, he received his gospel message in a divine manner. He heard it straight from Jesus. He didn't get it from any other man. And, and, and he was called as an apostle, which meant he was one of the highest leadership in the churches. And I want you to see just some of the tension that is written in here, be, because as he's speaking, the church should be listening to him. They should be trusting wh what they've already seen happen, that God's done miracles through Paul. He, he, he's who he says he is, and he has the right gospel message, but they, they don't really listen because there's so much confusion in the church. And so Barnabas and Paul are saying, no, that, that's not right. And then finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, but not just by themselves to get an answer from the apostles in Jerusalem, but by some local, believer, some local believers went as well to talk with the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent the delegates, delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church including the apostles and elders. Everybody was getting along. They reported everything God had done through them, but then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted 
the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law. And, and so the, this conversation, it, it starts going, and, and it's really rooted out of the fact that there's these differences of opinion, there's these differences about how to live out the faith and how to keep your salvation they were crucial, but there's also cultural things because there was huge cultural differences between the Gentiles and the Jews. And, and we might feel like, okay, that, that happened then, but that doesn't happen today. But I want to tell you, it happens in churches all over the time, all over the place. And it's been happening for decades, it's been happening for hundreds of years, and it's something that we have to guard against today. Be- because they looked at the Gentile believers and they said, man, they dress differently than us, they smell differently than us, they eat differently than us. They do their hair differently than us. Every single thing about them is different. And we have grown up learning these over 600 rules and traditions that are beautiful. And they're rooted in, in the Old Testament. And they have this rich heritage. And we know the tunes to how all of these things are sung. And these new people who are coming in, they want and they respond to something different than what we have always done. And so as these people come in, we just need to go ahead and set the ground rules that in this place, this is how we operate, this is how we sing, this is how we dress, these are the traditions that we follow. But Paul and Barnabas looked at this and they said, like, we know those traditions too, but we also know what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And we don't need to place all of these burdens to conform to this old style on these people. But every organization has this drift towards, let's, let's require, let's just do, let's focus on what the people on the inside love and not worry about the people on the outside. And, and, and the first point, we're going to look at three different tendencies or drifts that are common in churches and common in our own, our own spiritual life in many ways. The drift is towards insiders and away from outsiders. This happens in lots of ways, and some of them are subtle. Some of them you don't even realize. Some of them just, you know, if you're on the setup team, there's probably been a thought that's run, run through your head before of like, why do we have so many stupid signs? Why do we have to set up so many of these? Because when someone walks into the church for the first time, they don't know where anything is. And people like to know where the bathroom is. They like to know where their kid's classroom is. They like to know how to navigate these hallways to go find their kids after the service again. And something just as simple as that is a way that we show we're not just insider-focused, we're outsider-focused. It's not by accident that we have a ton of people outside when you're coming into the church. Because we want people to know, when you come in here for the first time, we think it's a big deal that you took the step and came. It can be terrifying to walk through the building, walk into a building of a church for the first time, especially when it's in a high school, because who does that? Is that a cult? Like, who has church in a high school? That sounds crazy. And so we have people outside because we want them to know that they're valued, that they're welcomed. And, and we're, we're a young church, and so we don't have too much to fight against in this yet. But I want you to know, our, our eyes are set that we're not going to be insider-focused. There's going to be times where there's things that we love to do, and we're going to change it because we realize we can do something more effective to help someone else. We're going to model that Luke 19.10 philosophy that Jesus said where the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. And we're going to model that and follow his ways. We're going to fight the drift towards insiders and away from outsiders. We're going to be moving towards other people. Continue on in the passage in verse 6. And and so they're there, and and the Jews are saying, I almost started reading you a whole new sermon there. Let's get to the right passage. All right. Uh, 
the Gentiles must, Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. And then in verse 6, so the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, which just shows you, like, this was not an easy answer. Like, these guys, there, there was some battle about which way the church was going to go on this topic. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve the issue. They put everybody else out, and at the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as, follow, as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. Now, now Peter did great, because as we've seen in the other chapters, this is one of the only times where Peter kind of preaches to someone and doesn't say, you know, this Jesus whom you crucified and betrayed and put to death. Like, he toned his preaching down a little bit in this scenario, but he said, God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit. There's a few different places in Scripture where it talks about knowing someone's heart. And one of the first that comes to mind is where it says, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? We can't even judge our own hearts and tensions and why we do things sometimes. But God can judge hearts. The thing that we can see is, is God beginning to work in someone's life? Do we see the Spirit begin to move? Because it... It would be easy enough to look at someone and say, oh, I saw them at church, but man, on the way back to the car, I could see that they were already lighting up a cigarette, and I don't know if I like that being in my church, and so I think maybe I should say something, and or we can fix them, because their heart is evidently messed up. And, and we can focus on, that, on the one flaw, or we can look at them and say, man, this person, they came through the church doors for the first time, and that's a big deal. And, and then on top of that, they came back, and, and they were engaged in what's happening. And it looks like God might be doing something there. In fact, a couple weeks later, that person starts serving on a team and starts getting connected. But man, I, they still kind of smell like smoke when they're on their way to like help unload the trailer. And it's easy for us to get caught up like, should I try to fix this one heart issue on them? Or should I pay attention to the sign that the Spirit of God is at work and doing something? Because Scripture tells us it's the role of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, to change their heart towards God. That's not our job. I mean, we saw last week that, that our job is not just to, to love, but to love one another. Like, it, it's not the scriptural call to just be loving in general. It's more specific than that. We need to be loving to one another. And we can't tell what's happening in someone else's heart, so we're not going to judge their heart. We're not going to judge their intentions. We're not going to judge where they're, where they're trying. We're going to see whether the Spirit of God is moving in them and whether they're responding, and we're going to encourage that. And we're going to help that. We're going to feed that. We're going to see that grow. And in the passage, it, it continues on. At, so th so they're, they're meeting, and after that long discussion, Peter said, God knows their heart. He confirms that he accepts the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. We believe that we were all saved the same way by undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. And Peter went for the, the stomach punch on this. He said, you're wanting to tell them they have to fulfill the law? But you couldn't even fulfill the law. Your ancestors that we brag about, that we talk about, man, they all failed at the law. So why are we going to try to put this 
on them when God said that there's something different, there's a different plan, that we're saved by grace. And in fact, Peter then at the end says, undeserved grace. Sometimes we forget that we're here because of undeserved grace. And it's like things that we started doing because we, we loved God, because we want to learn more about Him. It's like, it, it's funny, even our Bible reading, it, it can be something that, that can at times put us in a weird spot with God because it's like we have this sense that I want to be a good Christian, and I love God, so I'm going to start reading my Bible. And then we get into this habit, and maybe a couple weeks, months, or years down the line, we're like, man, I'm not a good Christian right now because I haven't been reading my Bible, and so I'm far from God, and so I just need to kind of step back from him at church a little bit until I can just get this area of my life. And it's like this thing that we should do, be doing because we love God, it's become this obligation that we have to do or we feel like we're not connected to him. And, and it's like we've put ourselves in this position where it's like, I am going to earn God's love and acceptance and favor. And if I don't read, and if I don't pray, and if I don't serve in this, we have replayed, if I'm not doing these things, then I don't have God's love and favor anymore. And then we have replaced this unmerited grace that he wants to give us with this, this concept of an earned love that is not real. And if we get into a mindset that I am just going to work harder and harder until I earn the love of God, until I feel like I deserve to be loved by him, we're going to be chasing something that we can never capture because you can never be good enough. You can never serve enough. You can never pray enough. And you can never know enough to deserve the love of God but it is given to you freely because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross to pay for your sins and reconnect you to God. You are adopted as a child of God who brings nothing to offer, undeserved grace. Your quiet time cannot earn God's love and affection, but he is giving you his love and affection. There's this drift towards law and away from grace. This is the second drift that we see in churches and see in our spiritual life. There is a drift towards law and away from grace. In the early church, the law was clean and it was organized and it was easy enough to point and say, you're wrong right now, change right now, do this right now, offer this sacrifice right now, and then fix that. Grace is messy because grace is patient and loving and I'll tell you, there's this awkward truth that there will be times where God is working on you the way that he was on me, where he's talking to you, and he's saying, this you cannot do anymore. But then you look and you see another Christian, and man, they're doing that thing, and it drives you nuts because God's talking to your heart. You can't live that way. You can't talk that way. You need to do this. You need to give sacrificially. And they're out there buying a new car, wasting their money, not giving it all. And it, and it stirs you up because I'm struggling with this. But we have to allow grace to work on them on their own time and be obedient to what God is calling us to right now. We don't get to apply what's on our heart to anybody else. This grace, this invitation that God gives to people who believe, it's that, it's an invitation that has to be responded to. And we have to allow other people to respond to it, even as we choose to do it. Continuing on in the passage, we see that Peter stood up and he gave his two cents and he says, you know, we believe that we are all saved the same way by undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. In verse 12 it says, everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now remember, Paul, he's, he's kind of the newest apostle. And so Peter, he's a pillar in the church. He stands up and gives his, his opinion 
Paul and Barnabas, they share, this is what we're seeing God do. And then after that, we see James, the brother of Jesus, stand up and share. Now, th- this is interesting because, I mean, the, the New Testament, the experience of, like, the family of Jesus, I mean, this just reads like history because, because it is history. You can't make this up. His brothers didn't even believe in him while he was walking on the earth. And, and answer me this. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he is God? <laughs> I mean, right? Like, you would have to see some pretty monumental stuff happen for your brother to persuade you on that. But a- after James and, his other, and, and the other siblings of Jesus rejected him during his life, after the resurrection, James had a change of heart and mind, and, and he had become a pillar and leader in the church. And then we're going to pick up part of James' response in verse 19. And so James, the brother of Jesus, is, is standing up and speaking, and he says, And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols and sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in the Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. Those laws have been known, but these are the things that we feel like are important. They they stay out of the things of animals that have been sacrificed in strange ways, and, and they should abstain from sexual immorality. And all the Pharisees in the room, their jaws are dropping as James is saying, you're going to reduce my 613 plus laws down to like three and a half? Like, this doesn't seem right. This this seems crazy that you're going to simplify this all the way down to here. But there's a decision that needs to be made in in their heart. I'm sure that it was difficult because it was a theological change, but it was also a huge cultural change. And there is a risk. Like, what if when we make this change, like all of these traditions that we've loved, these holidays that we've loved, these songs that we've loved, what if we don't get to do these anymore? What, what if they come in and they change everything? What if, what if all the Jews leave Christianity and, and the Jews, man, they're, they're the tithers, they're the ones who are supporting what's happening. And, and it's easy to see this drift that they were struggling with in this decision. It's a drift that churches still struggle with today. This concept of keeping what we have and what we know versus moving towards something it's a great opportunity because what if thousands of Gentile people come to Christ and follow him? What if thousands of Gentile people begin to serve and, and they raise their kids knowing Christ? What, what if amongst these two completely different people groups, these different races, these different demographics, what if they come together and create something that could change the world? There's a risk associated with making this change. And, and the, the third drift that I I see in these passages is the drift towards preserving rather than advancing. Because when a change is made like this, you know that what's behind you, it's not going to be the same as what's ahead of you anymore. And we're a young church. We we don't have to deal with this, but we see this all across the U.S. And in fact, we're a young church, but we are like in the top 71% of all churches based on attendance. I mean, there's churches that have been around for 30 years that have buildings and bank accounts and lots of staff and less people than us. And it's not that we're great, but it's that I think we're willing to take risks for God. And and there's so many churches that got locked up that says, man, you know, we we could do this and it might attract some more people, but if we do this, it could upset someone. Like if we had a trunk or treat, people might think that we're celebrating Halloween and they might get upset and go to the church across the street and then we'll lose that tithe money, we'll lose that person and we won't have what we had anymore. And there's this constant question of risking what we have versus moving towards what God might have for us. 
And we're young, so it's easy because we don't have as much to risk yet. But I want to keep the heartbeat and the mind that we are moving toward. There's something greater ahead of us than what's behind us because there's people in our city, people around us at work that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they hear it, the church has something to offer them and that when they hear it and respond to it, they're going to know a greater love than they have ever known. And, and, and maybe some people will come to church and be like, that's not for me. I think it's weird that you want to go there. And sometimes, man, inviting someone to church, it can be risky. But sometimes you're going to invite people to church and God's going to get a hold of their heart and it's going to change their marriage. It's going to change their life. It's going to change their kid's life. But I understand where you sit today in the area that you'd say, God would want me to take a risk on this. That there could be victory or there could be failure if you step out. And sometimes God, he asks us to take big steps, and they're, and they're terrifying. But the risks are worth it. When I was reading this last week, uh, I came across a quote from a, a book called Chase the Lion by Mark Batterson. And hi, the whole book is just built off of these couple little verses about a guy named Benaniah. And it, there's not much written about him, other than he was like, crazy. I mean, you'll understand when I say he's crazy. There's two references to him in 2 Samuel 23, 20, and in 1 Chronicles eleven twenty two, And it said that Benaniah, he did great exploits. He had crazy adventures. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors, and listen to this. This is, this is in there. You'll come across this stuff when you read the Bible. He chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day, and he killed it. First of all, who chases a lion and what is wrong with you? That's, that works the opposite way most of the time. And he went into a situation with, that was dangerous, and he took this risk, and he did this, and this is the way that he lived his life. It's not just about the lion, but it's the fact that he did all these crazy risks to serve God. And, and it looks at the heart uh, of the adventurer that we see in him. And the book kind of contrasts and says, what is the heart of the church like right now? Because for the most part, churches across America just protect what we have, protect what we have, protect what we have. And throughout scripture, we see this adventurous heart, this when they encounter persecution, they pray for more boldness. When they preach with boldness, they get more persecution and they ask for more boldness and they go out and they preach more. And we've settled into this, well, I wouldn't want to upset anyone by handing them an invite card to a nice church service where they get fed a snack and a bag of chips afterwards. Like, <laughs> our courage is a little bit needing to step forward. In, in the book, he, he writes the, this and lion chaser's motto, and it encouraged my heart, and there's one line that I'm going to read three times, and it might seem overkill, but man, the line, it just connects into my heart, and, and so I'm going to read this as I close this message today, and I hope it's an encouragement to you. I hope that when you feel the drift to just go into what's comfortable, what's known, that it'll encourage you to step out and take that risk that God has been putting on your heart, because I believe there is something better on the other side of that risk. Quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Run to the roar. Set God-sized goals. Pursue God-given passions. Go after a dream that is destined to fail without divine intervention. Stop pointing out problems. Become part of the solution. Stop 
repeating the past, start creating the future. Face your fears. Fight for your dreams. Grab opportunity by the mane and don't let go. Live like today is the first day and the last day of your life. Burn sinful bridges. Blaze new trails. Live for the applause of nail-scarred hands. Live for the applause of nail-scarred hands. I'm going to say it again. Live for the applause of nail-scarred hands. And don't let what's wrong with you keep you worshiping what's right with God. Dare to fail. Dare to be different. Quit holding out. Quit holding back. And quit running away. Chase the lion. If God has put a dream in your heart for what's ahead of you in your life, don't let fear hold you back. When we chase those lion-sized dreams, God does even bigger things than we can imagine, bigger things than we could ask. Let me pray for you today. Father, I thank you so much that you don't call us to just sit quietly by, but you call us to a life of adventure. And that when we step out in obedience to you, when we step forward in our faith, we see change. When we respond to what your Spirit is doing, in our life, in our family, in our church. We know that you lead us towards greater things. And so, Father, don't let us drift from this mission that you've placed in front of us. Don't let us drift from the passion that should be guiding our marriage, guiding our life, guiding our work, guiding how we lead our children. Strengthen those callings, Lord. And give us the courage to obey, whatever the cost. We thank you for the opportunity you've placed in front of us. In Jesus' name, amen. If it's your first time here at Gulfside Church, I want to let you know um, there, there's no obligation to give. But for those of us who this is our home church, I thank you for honoring God and your generosity. It enables us to push this vision and mission forward. And so the ushers, they're going to come forward to receive the tithes and offerings as we sing this next song.